You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, everybody. Ken Davenport here. Listen, everybody says Broadway tickets are expensive, right? Well, in case you didn't know, we're in the middle of Broadway week. Broadway week is right now, which is two-for-one tickets on a ton of shows including many that you wouldn't expect to be two-for-one. Check it out at nycgo.com, nycgo.com for Broadway Week's two-for-one special. Enjoy. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hey, everybody. Ken Davenport here. Time for another episode of the Producer's Perspective podcast, and we're celebrating another first today on the podcast. We've had set designers on this podcast like David Rockwell. We've had costume designers on this podcast like Greg Barnes, but we've actually never had a lighting designer until now, today. Uh, Ladies and listeners, please welcome to the podcast Tony Award-winning lighting designer Ken Billington. Welcome, Ken. Hey, thanks a lot, Ken. So if you've listened to this podcast before, then whenever I have a real Broadway luminary on, I often joke about how I can't read all their credits because there's like 97 shows on their Playbill Ball page, some big exaggeration. Well, in Ken's case, there's literally like 97 shows on his Playbill Ball page. He has uh, been designing Broadway shows for decades now and literally over 90 credits there, including, I don't know, the original Sweeney Todd, a couple productions of Fiddler, the Drowsy Chaperone, Hugh Jackman Show, The Revival of Candide, where we met, Scottsboro Boys, and a lot more, and a lot more to come, I am sure. Including, full disclosure, Ken is doing the lights for my upcoming Broadway production of Getting the Band Back Together. Uh, done a ton of off-Broadway shows, worked in opera, Disneyland, was the principal lighting designer for Radio City Christmas Spectacular for 25 years. 27. Correct? 27 years! Oh, and he's also in the Theater Hall of Fame, so there's that. So... 90 shows. How did this begin for you? Where? Tell me about the first one. The first one, you know, it was all I ever wanted to be. So this is the fun part. All I ever wanted to be was a lighting designer. Um, I turned the lights on and off for the fourth grade play. Thought it was cool. I got applause for a blackout. Big deal from the other um, fifth and sixth graders. Uh, and decided I wanted to do lighting. And, you know, my parents were always appalled to see me with a straight ladder in the backyard aiming the floodlights into another tree. Never down where people were, always making the backyard look pretty. Um, and no, it would day, and then I'd refocus. So all I ever wanted to do, and started with community players. I grew up just outside the city in Harrison, New York, Ryan Harrison, New York, and I was a member of the Harrison Players. Went to Harrison High School and loved lighting and did the community players and Wanted to go to college, but I couldn't get in. I guess I wasn't smart enough. So when that failed, I decided I was going to work in New York. So here I was at 18, working around town, and I became an assistant on Broadway when I was 19 for the great Theron Musser, arguably the greatest lighting designer who's ever lived, and learned a lot. Worked on a lot of shows with her, about 25 with her, and then worked for other people, and then just sort of struck out on my own 
when everybody else was getting out of college, I was, you know, ready to design a Broadway show. And it just sort of happened. It's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't get the university part, which I wanted to do, but SATs, I wasn't good enough at. So I couldn't get into Carnegie Mellon or Carnegie Tech in those days. So I just did it by doing it on Broadway. (laughs) So no formal lighting design training. I did take a course on Saturday mornings at the Lester Polakov Studio in Form of Stage Design, which was on Brownstone on 91st Street, which was fancy designers teaching, um, doing a three-hour basic seminar, which I took for a year of season when, you know... uh, but there were Lang's Arms, Peggy Clark, Tom Skelton, um, Chuck Levy. These were great people of their day teaching. And you would do a project and then you would go. I'd watch shows load in and, you know, hang out at the theater, see how it was happening. Uh, and finally, after I'd done that for a year, I was watching the load in of MAME, the musical, at the Winter Garden. And I was there for like three days. The trucks pulled up. I was there. I wanted to see how this happened. You know, um, and I, you know, it was, I was young. I was a kid. And at the end of that, I went to Theron Musser and said, I want to work for you. You know, like, why? I'm totally unqualified to be anybody's assistant. And she said, okay, Stratford, Connecticut. So Stratford, Connecticut Shakespeare Festival did five shows and rotating rep. And so that season, I went off and was the assistant lighting designer at Stratford, Connecticut. Then left that because she lost her New York assistant, and I came to be her assistant in New York. We started with the National Company in Maine and did the original production of The Birthday Party and all these shows. And then I stayed with her for three years, uh, assisting, doing lots of things. I remember one season we did three musicals in two months, and that's back when musicals did two out-of-town cities before they came in. Uh, here's the trivia world. It was Maggie Flynn, The Fig Leaves Are Falling, and A Mother's Kisses, all, all of which were opened and closed by December, and they didn't go out of town until September. Uh, they opened it, went out of town in September. We made it into town in November, and they were all gone by Christmas. So, um, But it was good training, and working with George Abbott and Morton DaCosta and... Gene Sachs and working with great people. It was a fabulous learning experience. Um, you know, I think the se- the first season I worked on Broadway was the book William Goldman wrote The Season About. So I read that and said, oh, I worked on all these shows. Um, so it was a good learning experience for me. So I'm going to, would normally save this question for the end when I would ask, what's your advice for younger folks just starting out in this business? But I'm going to ask it now, which is you didn't have formal design training, but you got incredible training on the job. Right. A young designer comes to you and says, I'm thinking about going to school to study your trade, or I'm thinking about just working. What would you tell them to do today? Uh, uh, Today, it's a little different. You know, when I wanted to be a lighting designer, it was a very young profession. There were two places you could go to school to study this. You could go to um, Carnegie. You could go to Yale, but that was graduate. Northwestern. That was it for teaching lighting. Now, every university has some lighting course. So there weren't so many people, you know, banging on doors. 
Also, the cost of producing a Broadway musical wasn't $18 million. I mean, a big musical was $350,000 in those days. So there was a little more give on a play to give somebody new a chance. So a different time, everyone knew me, people gave me a chance. I proved myself and I continued to work. Today, I think you need to do university training of some sort, maybe not graduate school. If you go to a good undergrad school and you're smart and you have the drive, you probably will learn enough to then come to wherever you want to do. Because, you know, besides Broadway, I I love Broadway, but there's also a bigger world out there. Um, Television, concert lighting, architectural lighting, opera, ballet. By the way, I do all of them, but it's... I started out wanting to do Broadway and then moved myself over. But there is lots of other things to do. And lighting is now a respected profession. And when I started, it wasn't that it was unrespected, but our union had only recognized lighting designers for four years when I joined it. So, you know, I had seen cars. So, yes, I think you need some sort of undergraduate training. The other thing is you have to keep working. You have to light. And I don't care if it is a school production, a community theater production, a dance in a gym, whatever it is, you have to light it and you have to learn from it. And what you can learn is if you take the job lighting the community players production of Damn Yankees and you took the job and they own 40 lights then you're going to like Damn Yankees with 40 lights. Hopefully the 40 work, but they may only have 25 working. So you're going to glue together as many as you can. But the secret is to light Damn Yankees with the 40 lights, what you committed to, and make it look as good as you can make it look. You can't sit there and complain and say, Well, if I had 60 lights, we could have anything. If I had 100 lights, if the guy knew how to run the console, if any, what all these complaints are, stop it. You took the job. Now your job is to do the job and make it look as good as you can make it look. And when the director says we need a green and you need to say, or make it red for the devil, you say, I can't do red because we don't have enough lights Now, let's think about this. Do we really need the moonlight? Could we change the moonlight to red? And the director might say, yes, let's get rid of the moonlight. The red's more important. But have the discussion. So work and just keep lighting and remember what you did wrong and remember what you did right. Because I tell students that light their school productions that, you know, comes opening night of whatever the school production is that's going to run for two weeks. And on opening night, everyone tells you you're a genius. Your parents think you are probably the greatest person lighting designers ever lived. The director slaps you on the back. The set designer hugs you. All your classmates tell you this is the best lighting I've ever seen. That's opening night. And that's what opening night should be. Now, what you need to do is rest on those laurels, take nap the next day, and the end of the run, the last performance, go, get a seat down in the fifth row with no friends and sit there and watch what you did and see if you did a good job and look at it and say, oh, 
yeah, the psych is really too bright. If it had been red instead of green, whatever, critique yourself and say, hmm, okay, I now know where I screwed up. Because if you don't do that, you're just going to think I'm the greatest in the world. That's yeah. Ken's advice. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's this Ken's advice too. It's being objective about your own work is one of the hardest things that I have to do as a producer. But it certainly makes my work better when I sit back and be like, oh, that show or that scene or that person that I hired or whatever it is yeah. wasn't quite right. What did I do wrong? So look, there's no question that over the years of your career, my career, the theater has changed a lot since you started Designer Clearly. Lights. Um, but what I am always so impressed with by lighting designers and sound designers is, look, if you're a writer or even if you're a producer, like the act of optioning and uh, putting people together is the same. If you're a writer, you're putting pen to paper, you're writing down. For a lighting designer, what you were lighting with when you started it's changed. Has, <laughs> has changed so much. Obviously, we know the technology has changed, but tell me a little bit about what you think the biggest change has been or what you've had to adapt to the most. Well, well you know, what the computer changed a lot. And we got lighting computers to control the lighting. Uh, Theron Musser put the first one on um, Chorus Line. I put the second one on a show called Side by Side by Sondheim. And within a year, every show was on automated control. The difference was when I learned to design, I had to learn to design for a man to operate it. So I had to think about when I was designing a show and laying a show out and cueing a show, can this be operated? Can this man with two arms take his 28 dimmers and put them all at different places in three counts? No, he can't. So then you had to choreograph the operation of the lighting. Because we went from manual to computers. Uh, and manual, not presets, not electronic dimmers. Guys standing between resistant dimmer boards, sweating, running lights. On a musical, you would have three men running the lights. But you had to choreograph. And it was as simple as, and this is, even if you don't know anything about lighting, if you wanted it to blink the lights between blue and red. Okay, so we have blue, and then we're going to go blink, 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 red, blue, red, blue, red, blue. I had to think of that up front. So I would put the red on his left hand, and I'd put the blue in his right hand, so we could blink the red and the blue. Because if you didn't think about it and the director would say, well, we need to blink the red and the blue, okay. Also in that era, directors knew that lighting was a manual operation and it took time. And many times you would do a show and you, they were writing down things backstage where they had manually do this. But you would get a phone call get a phone call from the stage manager on the second week of rehearsal saying, listen, the director has Mary entering and standing in the doorway up center, delivering her first line. He said, you'll probably need a special there. This came from the director. Okay, so I, on the light plot, add a light to light the doorway up center. And that's the morning scene, so it's going to be a morning color. Um, and then a week later, the stage manager calls and says, by the way, he has the Mary entering in the same doorway in the night scene. You're going to need a night special up there. So I had to put two lights up. 
but the director knew was anticipating the needs of the lighting designer and communicating via the stage manager all the time during rehearsals. And I would go to rehearsals all the time because if you saw something like, oh, they're standing someplace, I didn't think anybody was going to stand, I got to put a light up. Where that has changed is then we got to electronics and we got computerized lighting. Blinking lights was writing two cues and the guy hit a button and it blinked red, blue, red, blue. We then added automated lighting and, and I put the first automated fixtures on Broadway in 1984 on a musical called Grind. But automated lights didn't come onto Broadway really until the 90s. Um, but now a di- newer director and directors that came up in the 80s but started in the 90s don't know about having to wait for the lighting designer because we're trying to figure out how to run the lights. They also can say, I need a special over on the door, and we have an automated fixture, and we can put the fixture on the door. And so I'm not getting the feedback from directors earlier because they haven't really thought about it. Um, and, and it's not that they're bad directing. They were never raised that way. So um, that's where the differences come that I see is the electronic control made a big difference. It was the biggest difference. And then automated lighting was maybe the second big change. What's next? Well, LEDs have sort of shown up, but LEDs are expensive. There's lots of things that go wrong with them. They don't necessarily fade out all the way. Um, You get more out of a single fixture. You can get multicolor or not. But, you know, where you could go and buy a spotlight, buy, purchase, own in your home a theatrical lighting fixture, Source 4, which is what everybody uses now, for probably $350. And then you put a piece of gel, which costs pennies, in front of it, and you have it red or whatever color you want. Now we can do an LED version of that light that costs $2,200. So... You have to then do trade-offs. You need to say, do we, want, do we want to spend all the money to get this one light that will do all these things? Or do I just hang two lights that are cheaper and put two colors in them? But LEDs are the big change at the moment. And I think, and, and that will continue to change. Um, you know, I often hear about, it's about electricity. We're saving, we're going green, we're saving electricity. We don't use much electricity in the theater. Yes, there are piles of electricity coming into the building, uh, which is all necessary for the curtain call. You know, when the guy is st- sitting down left at a campfire with one light at 30% on him, um, you know, it's not using any electricity. Probably your bathroom is using more electricity than we are on stage at that moment. So, and, and theaters are only lit. What's a show run? Two hours, two and a half hours. So we're not energy hogs. We have a lot of electricity, but we're not hogs. Do lighting designers like projections? Because projections... Enjoy are, them or... Well, proje- I'm just... This isn't even on my list of questions. Yeah, no, I mean, you. I do a lot of projection shows. Right. So projections are have come into the market a lot. Some people use them to replace scenery, right? So they could right. put a, tell, put you in a place. But there, there's, of course, light coming off of them. There right. isn't light coming off a, a drop or a building. Right. So how does that affect your work? It affects 
the projection designer, back when it used to be scenic projectors, I used to do all the projections with the set design. Now that it's become video, um, I, I need somebody else needs to deal with it. It's become a, a full-time uh, occupation. You need a collaborator in the projection designer in two ways is if I put too much light on stage, you don't see the projections. But that said, the projection designer needs to give me enough light on stage so I can make it look like a sunny day. You know, I always say when we were doing Sunday in the Park with George Revival a few years ago that had um, a lot of projections in it, I said it's uh, uh, Sunday. I said day is the key word here, everybody. The I can't make it sun dark uh, so we can see the projections. Everyone was totally on board and it worked out brilliantly. So you have to make sure the content is in keeping with what you're doing, that everybody's on the same and content is whatever it is. But if, you know, the they talk about it all being a bluish lavender event. And so I light it, and it's bluish lavender, and then the projection designer says, oh, you know, we should add more orange to it. And then he puts a lot of orange into it, or she. And then my lighting doesn't make any sense in front of it. So we all need to talk about this. It's, because you can change it doesn't necessarily mean you should. And you need powerful projectors. Powerful projectors are noisy. The content is crucial. Um, everyone always thinks, not everyone, a fallacy is, oh, we do a, if we do projections, we don't have to build scenery. Well, I have done musicals where the content, that is what was projected, cost over a million dollars. Plus, they built a set, and then you rent the projectors, the video rental, which costs usually more than the lighting rental. So... It's not a savings. What it is, is a new tool for design and helping create maybe more fluid uh, changes, more uh, going to many locations instead of lumbering scenery. You also don't want to make it look like we're going to the drive-in movie with people in front of the screen. So it's, it's an art form, and it's actually getting pretty good. So... To get specific, uh, John Rando, director of Getting the Band Back Together, and I are sitting around, and we're like, we're talking designers. And he's like, Ken Billington. I was like, I love Ken Billington. So great. So we call you up, and you say, want to do this? And you say, yeah, I'd love to work with you guys. And we give you the script. Then what? Take me through your process. The script is, usually, before I say yes, I read the script. But when it's friends, you just say, yeah, sure, whatever it is. We'll go party and play and maybe put out a good show. Um, the one thing I never do is I never take on a project that I hate or with a director that I don't see eye to eye with because then we're sabotaging the production um, because then I'm not going to give my all, though I always give my all. But if the director and I are not seeing eye to eye, it's really the director's, he's the visionary here. I help complete his vision. Uh, and by the way, that's only happened to me once. So, I mean, it's not in a lot of shows. Um, but so I take the script and I read the script. Uh, if there's a demo, I listen to the demo. I don't write any notes. I just listen. I sit at home and I say, 
oh, this is sort of interesting. This is fun. It's nice. It's um, Act Two needs to be rewritten. But whatever it is, I then the next day read it and take my pencil and I underline things in the script like um, lightning. You see the playwright's written lightning. Oh, lightning. So we're going to have lightning. Uh, and then you... I underline things that are very crucial. What time of year is it? What time of day is it? Where are we? You know, is it a sunny summer day in the Hamptons? That tells you one thing. Or a winter day in Minnesota, that tells you something else. Or um, a foggy day in London. I, so that's all. So I, all those things are important. So I do all that. And then the, here's the ideal scenario is... When all that is done, I have done that, and I usually, if I don't know the director, we should we have a meeting, and we talk, and we rarely talk about the play. We talk about lunch, and where, what show they saw last night, and then you get to the play. It's about seeing if you're going to work together well. Uh, after that, then I want to meet, get with the set designer, and I love being in the first meeting with the set designer and the costume designer, to get all the designers in the room at once to come up with ideas um, or to talk about the play. Um, and then after we have that talk, I sort of have to step back because I can do nothing until the scenic designer gives me the environment that we're going to work in. Scenic designers usually call me during the process of them creating that and saying was thinking of doing a psych or blacks or whatever version of scenery. But then once the scenery is a rough plan and section, I can then work on it. And then I have to call the set designer and say, boy, I need a little more room here. Can we make that drop? Should that drop be made out of filled scrim instead of muslin? And we talk about materials. Um, and then I draw a light plot. Um, and what most people don't know is I design the lighting long before the show goes into rehearsal. So I am there at my drawing board creating, drafting a light plot. I'm a mechanical drawing. And the set goes to bids, then the lights go to bid. And then we all show up in the theater and create it. So that process, I like being in from the beginning and those early meetings with the other designers. And then I have to step back because... I, I'm not going to tell the set designer how to design it. That's his job. Um, and maybe he heard something. But then there are sometimes just practical things that need... I need room for lights. I need 28 inches here. Even though there's all the drops are there, I still need 28 inches or you're not going to see the actors or the drops. So now let's talk about those drops. Do we really need three drops or can we do it with whatever the answers might be? An old producer once said to me that when you hire designers, you hire a set designer first and then a lighting designer second and a costume designer third. Like there was that order, that right. hierarchy. Do you think that's true? Do you think... No, and I'll tell you, there's many shows in my career where I've been the first person hired. And the producer has said to me, here are the three set designers I was thinking of. Who do you like? Or who do you think will be right for this show? And I won't tell you the number of shows I have done within the last 10 years where I've been the first person hired. So uh, since it's a total collaboration, you want the right people to 
work together uh, to come up with that. So I think you need to, what is the good team going to be? And by the way, there are many set designers who say, I want Ken. Uh, and there's probably a few that say, I don't want Ken. Uh, there's some producers that love me, and maybe there's a few that dislike me. So um, I don't think, I think if you can get everybody in the room to start, then you can come along. If you go back with the old producer, once upon a time, the scenic designers lit the shows. So Joe Melziner and Howard Bay and Robert Edmund Jones, I mean, just go way back. They did the lighting. So the lighting designer, that was part of their job. And then when lighting designers started coming into the picture, um, which is after the Second World War, I mean, the first musical that ever listed a lighting designer on a playbill and a pro on a poster was Brigadoon with Peggy Clark. So we are still a young profession. Uh, and scenic designers were lighting their own shows probably up into the 80s, late 70s, and then the lighting designer took over. By the way, I have no idea how anybody could do scenery and lights. It's such a complicated full-time job. And it used to be they sometimes did sets, lights, and costumes. So you say, oh, okay, worry about zippers, the red gel, and the set falling over. <laughs> you mentioned the bid process. I have a couple questions about that. So I have always thought of lighting designers like painters. Right? You paint with light. Absolutely. And, and all great painters have their color palette, their, their board of all their colors. And I, I used to think, so tell me if I'm right or wrong, or um, that when it comes to like, oh, I'm doing a musical. Oh, it's a musical comedy. Give me Ken Billington musical comedy B right. because you have your palette so you know what you're going to start with and then maybe you have some additionals. Is that the case or is it really starting every instrument from scratch? Well, you know, I've been doing it so long. I know how things work. Uh, and here's, here's a big secret about lighting. It's about seeing people. You know, if you can't see them, it doesn't work. Uh, so visibility is crucial to my profession. I can't make the jokes funnier, though sometimes everyone thinks if it's brighter, they'll laugh. Sometimes they need to go rewrite it. But, um, you know, I, I can't make a show a hit. I can I can make it 10% better. I can take it from 70 to 80, maybe. I can't take it from 50 to 60. You know, it's still down there. Um, but for color, it all is dictated by what the play is, you know, is it surreal, is it old-fashioned, is it a cartoon, is it whatever that might be, then tells you a little bit about what is a color palette that you would use. Um, yes, you know, if you're doing My Fair Lady, now this is as general as you can get, it's a pink and blue musical. You have the blue scenes for night, you have the pink scenes for the rest of the thing, and you have some specials. That's as general, and people are going to say, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But in fact, it's pink and blue. But I remember the first time I did a Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Boris Aronson scenery, uh, in the Winter Garden Theater with uh, Zero Mustel. It was a revival in the 70s. And I thought I'd lit it really well. And it's Fiddler on the Roof, which is not pink and blue. Um, but it's, you know, it's nature and nature is beautiful. So it isn't, it, it isn't gloomy. I mean, it's winter in Russia and it's sunny summer in Russia. 
and all these fabulous backdrops by um, Boris Aronson. And we were in a scene, and Boris came up to me, and he said, Ken, Ken, it's to Walt Disney, and then walked away from me. Now, I knew exactly what he meant. There was too much green in the backdrop, blue-green. So I took it out, and he said, thank you, from a row in front. Those are the notes I like. You know, I had made Fiddler on the Roof to Walt Disney, and it was all done because of color. And the secret is color is the cheapest thing in the world you can change. You go get a gel and put another one in. I did a terrible flop musical called Perfectly Frank. Um, it was a Frank Lesser review, uh, and it ran for at least three or four weeks. Um, and we replaced the director uh, coming into New York. And the director said to me, he said, well, this should look like Anne Margaret's nightclub act. And I happened to like Anne Margaret. And so I thought I knew exactly what he meant. But I thought that was totally the wrong concept for the lighting. But being the good kid I was, I went and I put in all these saturated colors. And I started. we started text on Perfectly Frank. And it didn't look good. The lighting was bad. It was just absolute bad. And I tried. I tried everything to make this show look good. And the director after me at every at intermission and after the show and I'm sitting there going what did I do wrong here looking at the show all this saturated blues and purples and reds and greens and ambers and I know how to use those colors but this show was not working and it didn't look good I called my best friend and it was a lighting designer and he came over and he he didn't know what to do so I went home one night and I said all right, tomorrow I'm going to go sit in the fifth row like an audience member, like they had hired Ken Billington to come fix the lighting. And so I went and I sat in the fifth row, and we were in the middle of the worst first act, and I went, oh, the color sucks. Who picked these colors? And I went out. I didn't watch act two. I went in and I saw the general manager, and I said, I need a call tomorrow. I'm regelling the show. He said, oh, Okay. By the way, that wasn't expensive. It was the crew call, which was already planned. We had to go buy, you know, $50 worth of gel. We cut it. We put it in. And the show all of a sudden looked terrific. I had made a blunder in color, but it's an easy thing to fix. But I recognized it. I, I tried to make it work, and I couldn't. So color is subjective. There's some designers that don't like color, some that do. I happen to be very lucky in that I can go from no color to saturated color when one show to the next. I work very well in both. I don't know if this even answered the question, but it's a good story. <laughs> it certainly is. Okay, so part two of the my bid question. So for those of you out there who don't know the quote-unquote bid process, what happens is Ken will develop this light plot. We will send it to shops. They will come back to us with, here's how much it's going to cost us to prep this stuff. Here's how much it's going to cost you to rent it and the perishables and the whole bit. And then this process happens. This, The producer and the general manager negotiate with the lighting shop. We talk to you. We beat you up. Like, why do you need so many damn lights? What about these LEDs right. versus the thing? It goes back and forth. The director gets involved. And it's a time-sucking mess, in my opinion. Right. Is there a way to make this better? Yes. Uh, uh, here's the way I do it. I ask what the budget is before I design the show. And if the producer, and if I think I'm making these numbers up, it's a $10,000 a week rental. 
and the producer says they have 5000 The general manager, I don't usually talk to the producer about that. They have $5,000. Then I will say, it's not enough. Well, that's all we have the money for. Well, I can give you a $5,000 show, but let's all get everybody in the room and know what... This is before I put a pencil to paper. I don't design shows twice. Um, let's get everybody in the room and tell the director that for $5,000, we're not going to have any automated lighting and we're not going to have any color changers. And make sure the producer's in the room too. So when we get to the first preview and they say... I can't see her up left and say, well, we couldn't afford the light. I mean, that's, don't stage anybody up there. Put them down center. So I try and get that out of the way up front uh, and get those numbers. And I will also go and say, you need to give me more money. And then they go and they look and they say, well, we can we can give you 6000 Okay, then we've now come to a thing. And I will design a $6,000 show. Um, so I rarely do I cut things or have to cut things because I've taken it from the beginning. Is that not being creative uh, and not doing the best I can do for the show? Well, the best I can do is $10,000. If you only have 6000 now, I need to modify things. It's still going to look great. It's just not going to maybe be everything everyone thinks it should be. But I would never let you down and not like the show well. So I want to know the numbers up front. And if they say, oh, the answer is not design what you need and we'll, we'll go from there. No, I'm not going to design what I need. You tell me what we can afford. You've worked with a lot of producers over the years, for sure. What makes a good producer to you? A good producer is a producer who's involved. Um, I want a producer who knows what I do for a living knows what my budget is, uh, knows what it takes to do this, and can show up in the theater. I, I don't see it much anymore, but it used to be that I would be... I remember when I was doing some play with Richard Barr, who produced things like Sweeney Todd. And he came in and he said, you going to get finished by dinner? And I said, yeah. He said, you ought to be finished by dinner. I'm not paying for the crew tonight. But that was the producer coming in and telling me that. Or the producer saying, this is the shop we're going to use. Um, but the producer being very involved. Not usually in things like um, make it brighter, make it darker. That's Because that isn't the producer's job. If the producer thinks it's too dark, they have to go to the director and say, it's too dark, have them make it brighter. And then the director will filter it and give it to me. Now, I know so many producers, sometimes they come up to me and I say, oh, that's a good idea. And we go on. So I want a producer that's involved, that's there, that knows what we're doing, that comes to the theater, that is with us, and can make it when we are there at 10 o'clock at night and we have to take the backdrop out and have it repainted, that the producer's there and we'll turn to the general manager and say, or, okay, the drop's going to cost this. What's the crew cost going to cost? Okay, my total cost to fix this is that. And then they make the decision. It's their decision to make. You know, no, guys, we can't afford to repaint the backdrop. How do we solve this another way? That's what I want them there to do. And to say, we need to work to midnight. Okay, you can work to midnight. 
Do you have to come in tomorrow morning? But to know what the budgets are, to know what it takes to put on a show, um, they also need to be able to guide the director and the authors and be the boss. Because, you know, if it's a flop or a hit, they everyone praises the director um, or says he should never work again. But, you know, if you have a producer, the, we all work for the producer. The producer is the one who signs the check. And if the producer doesn't want us there, we aren't there. Um, and they need to do that. They have to produce and they have to talk to people and they have to be involved and not just show up on opening night. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question that I ask all of my, my guests. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to see you and says, Ken, you've made such amazing contributions to the lighting and the Broadway community in general. You're in the Hall of Fame, for God's sakes. I owe you something. <laughs> which is, I'm going to grant you one wish. Just one wish. What is the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway, that makes you so angry, that keeps you up at night, that you would want to wish away for Broadway, but you can only choose one? I would get the critics back on opening night and have that adrenaline and that excitement that happens. Kind of, sometimes it happens once on opening night. And I think we shows suffer by having critical performances for five, six, seven days or whatever. Okay, Wednesday matinee has to be good. The Times is here. But we're not opening until next Tuesday, you know. Um, and I have been to shows back because when I started, that's what it was. And I have seen magic on opening night that the audience stood up. This is before they ever stood up. You know, they never stood up every performance like they do now. So those are the things. For the Broadway community, I want that excitement. And maybe a star is born and a hit is made. And that can only happen if that electricity hits in that performance. And, you know, it's hard to create a star now over five afternoons. That is such a simple and brilliant idea. I love it. Of course, I'll have to play this podcast for Ben Brantley, who did a podcast who actually explained why he loves to come earlier, right. which, of course, I understand. Well, you know, I was t telling a story in my office today earlier. When I did Sweeney Todd originally, we opened on a Thursday night. And after four weeks of previews, and that was when critics came on opening night. And Hal Prince was very concerned that Sweeney Todd was so important and so deep in its composition and, and what we were, the story we were telling, he didn't think the critics could figure it out in one hour to leave the theater at 9.30 and have a review in the paper at 11 o'clock at night. So he invited the critics, or had the producers actually, to either show on Wednesday so uh, I remember the critic for the Times, I don't know if it was Clive Barnes or not, maybe Richard Eater, I don't remember, came Wednesday matinee and came back Thursday night. That was the first time it had ever been done, and for the right reason, I think. Um, but and then they started coming so far in advance. 
I, I think also the way critics write now, they're not accustomed to writing a review in, uh, you know, an hour. Of course, they probably had the play sent to them before that, so they read it and they, they knew a little bit about it before they walked into the building. That's a great answer. I want to thank you so much for spending the time with us today, and uh, I can't wait to see your next 90 shows. No, neither can I. I'm doing them. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, everybody, don't forget about Broadway Week. Broadway Week this week until February 5th only. Two-for-one tickets on your favorite shows. Go to nycgo.com. I'm going to be a producer. Look out, Broadway. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.